0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is found just before the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament. So you can go there. Somebody replied to something I'd posted about be preaching on Jude this week. I won't say who they are because they're here. If they weren't here, I'd tell you. But uh, they said, uh, Jude, I don't know if I can find that or not. Is that a chapter in Hebrews? And uh so <clears throat> I guess we have been in Hebrews for a while and that's good. But Jude is a is a short little book uh that will only command our attention probably 7 or 8 weeks. But uh there's a lot in this little book. There's a lot that we need to hear. Uh and not just the the obvious, you know, the the you're going to hear when I read the whole book in just a moment about uh things like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that uh, sin there, and we, we're easily to hear, oh, that's horrible, that's a sin. But it's a, uh, you know, I've, I've really come to believe that if we pastors are not careful, we will become ear ticklers by dealing with the big subjects like that because we all agree those are wrong. And so we can all say, amen, yes, go, go. But one thing Jude is going to do, I think, is it's going to hit us some. It's going to strike us where we are. Uh, And so I might not be such a a popular preacher time Jude is over because uh, it's going to hit me some. It's going to hit you some right where you are. And I think that's the essence of what the, the scriptures are about. And that's what the gospel is about. We need to be challenged every day not to be standing against the sins that are out there but standing against the sins that are in here in our own life and even in our own church. I want you to hear the book of Jude. I want you to hear it in its entirety. It was a letter written, and it was written to be read. And so, I want to—I want to just read it all the way through. Although we will only touch on the first two chapters today, and them—them them maybe not even completely. Hear the word of the Lord as we read from the book of Jude. Jude, a bondservant, New American Standard says, "Will and some will just say servant." We'll talk about the real meaning of that word in a few minutes, but. We'll pass by it now as it is for right now. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but ab- abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they, do, which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain... And for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. I mean, at one verse he deals with three major historical uh, tragedies. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up uh, casting up their own shame like foam wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever it was also about these men that enoch in the seventh generation from adam prophesied saying behold the lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. That is Christ, or God. You get the idea they were ungodly in that verse, don't you? These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And then perhaps one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament It's very concise in what he wants to say. There's a lot of things he could have elaborated upon, but he assumed that those who were reading this letter know about it. I'm now going to make that same assumption as we move through it. Because we are living in a day that has sometimes forgotten some of the things that we ought to be remembering. Some of the ways that God even dealt harshly with his own people in order to discipline them, in order to strengthen them, in order to bring them out of their own self-centeredness, to see the need of the world and the need of others beyond their own need. And, and that's what the writer here, Jude, is really concerned about. It starts with just a brief introduction. Most of the time when we come to these introductions of letters in all the New Testament, uh, we're, we're typically kind of, kind of inclined to just pass on over it quickly. You know, Oh, I know what he said. He's saying who he is. He's saying grace and peace and mercy to you and all that. He's just saying hi. And so we go over it. A lot of times we treat those introductions, especially in the epistles, uh, like I treat a flight attendant when I'm sitting on an airplane. You know, That's got to be the, the most unappreciated job in all the world. Nobody listens. I'll guarantee our team that flew out of Cincinnati this past week, they sat on that airplane, and while this flight attendant was there saying, here's a seat belt, fasten it, unbuckle it, Here's an oxygen mask. It may fall down. If it does, grab hold of it. Put it on yourself first. I mean, you can almost recite it by heart. You've heard it so many times. Most people pay no attention to that. That's typically the way we do introductions to epistles, introductions to letters. Just assume they're just saying hi and want to get on to the meat. I have preached in a couple of places in my life where I felt like a flight attendant standing before the congregation. Everybody kind of looking down, looking around, saying, we're going to get out of here. Now, not at grace, thank goodness. I don't think I've ever felt that way. But there are times when we take so much for granted that we just sort of say, oh, I've heard all that before. What do I need to hear about it now? This introduction, these first two verses, are filled with stuff that we need to understand. It's filled with principles and precepts that if we miss, we will miss the essence of. Of the, of the Christian life. That's why I, I titled this sermon today. The, the whole series in, this, in Jude is entitled, Call to Contend. And we'll see how that fits in later. But, but the title of this one is, The Essence of the Gospel. Because in those two verses, verses 1 and 2, Jude gives us the essence of the gospel in my life and in your life. He starts out by just introducing himself. He said, Jude, a bondservant or doulos of Jesus Christ... And brother of James. The first thing I want you to see in that first part of the first verse is I want you to see the humility of this man, Jude. The the humility that he expresses just in that verse. Now, it's not just that he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, but it's that he could have said something else. He could have said something else that in the eyes of many people would have exalted him and and it would have caused him a greater honor and a greater admiration probably. Because what he tells us here is this. First of all, he tells us that he is a brother of James. James is the one who was a pillar in the church in, uh, in Jerusalem, we're told, in the book of Acts. James is the one who wrote the little epistle of James and identifies himself as the brother of Jesus Christ. He is literally the half-brother. He had the same mother. Mary was the, was the mother of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. James was the, brother, uh, was the, the son of Mary by Joseph, his father. And so uh, James and Jesus were half-brothers. Jude could have started out by saying, listen, I'm on the same level as my brother, little older brother James. I, I'm, a, I'm a brother of Jesus Christ. I'm a half-brother of Jesus Christ. I'm from the same mother that Jesus is from. But he doesn't do that. He starts out by saying, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. I don't claim family ties. I don't, I don't claim... This, this, this relationship of, of half-brother. I don't claim that I'm something special because I have the same mother that Jesus had, but rather I want you to know that my life is wrapped up in being a doulos of Jesus Christ. Your translation, no doubt, uses servant or Bond servant is bond really not a, there's no word in Greek to really express that. It's just kind of stuck in there because I want you to see it's, it's, more than, it's more important than just servant by itself. So a bond servant, one is in bondage as a servant to this one. But the reality is the word doulos only means one thing. And because of our sensitivities, and because of the history, especially in our nation, and even the history of the world, we kind of avoid using that, because the, the real word there is Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't throw out a lot of Greek words usually, but that word doulos is a Greek word that you ought to know. It means literally one who is under absolute control of the other. One in whom the other controls his life, controls your life, rules over everything about you, whether it's your personal life, whether it's your job life, whether it's your family life, whether it's your church life, whatever it is, I am, Jude says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ more than anything else. That's my claim to fame. That's my That's the way I want you to think of me, Jude says. That's the way I want to first and foremost be identified. Oh yeah, I'm a brother of James. And by virtue of that, you can figure it out. He's probably saying to the people, you can figure out by that I'm also a half-brother of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know that being a half-brother of Jesus Christ is not nearly so important as being a slave of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my... My my complete Lord. He is the one in whom I have bowed the knee before and I will bow the knee before nothing else and no one else. I won't bow it before things. I won't bow bow it before a king. I won't bow the knee before uh, wealth and popularity or anything else. I am a slave. I am sold to, bought by completely Jesus Christ. You know, that's, that's kind of important to realize. Jude tells us that. Jude acknowledges that. But you realize that if you are, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you really know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's really who you are too? You're not a slave to another man, not another human on this earth. You're freed from any kind of slavery like that because you are now a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's the only slavery the Bible really commends. A slave of Jesus Christ. Bought by Him. Purchased. Paid for. At the cross. You belong to Him. Lock, stock, and barrel. You and everything that you have. You and your family. And you and all your possessions. Jude says, I want you to know... That is my first identity. I am a servant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to tell us in verse 3 next week, we look at it, that that his purpose of writing this is that they might contend for the gospel. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down or delivered to the saints. That's, That's the reason he's writing the rest of this book. But before he gets to that, he's wanting us to understand the gospel or the faith for which we are to contend. The first thing he says is that we are servants, we are slaves, we are losses of Jesus Christ. There, there are three other things he says about the Christian life, though, I want you to see. He says, not only are you a slave of Christ by virtue of his purchase, but he also says, I'm writing to you who are Christians who are the called the called that's an unusual term but but it's the most used term in all of the new testament for a christian It's not talking about some kind of general call or some kind of general invitation that we give out every day, everywhere we go, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're calling people to Christ. Oh, I invite you to Christ. I invite you to trust Him. No, he uses that definite article in front of call there. We're not a called. We're not some called. We are the called of Jesus Christ. Alec Moyer in his commentary made the statement he said, This is not God's invitation to be saved, it is God's determination to be saved. If you're a believer, you surely by now have come to recognize and acknowledge, no matter what you how you expressed it early on in your Christian life, you, you certainly now come to recognize and acknowledge. I am saved, I am a believer, I am in Christ because God initiated something in my life by His grace, by His Holy Spirit that I never would have done on my own. It was God's Spirit working upon me. God's Spirit effectually calling me. God's Spirit saying, Come and follow me and be my disciple, just like Jesus did to Peter and John and, and the rest of those, just like Jesus did to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Come and follow me. It is, you are the called. It is the most used name in all of Scripture to, or all the New Testament to describe the Christian. We're not Christians because we are intellectually or morally superior to unbelievers. It's not because we figured it out and, and said one day, oh man, ooh, I'd be, a, I'd be a fool if I don't do this. You may have said that, but you said it because the the grace of God touched your life and called you to Him. I love how Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, two centuries ago, or in, in two centuries prior to this, not 200 years ago, but in the in the eighteen hundreds. This is how he said it. It's fairly lengthy, but I want you to hear this. When he's talking about this concept of being the called, he said, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Was there not a day the mementos of which you fondly cherish when you were called from death to life? Fly back now with me to the day and the hour if you can, and if not, light upon the season thereabouts, where a great transaction took place in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to Him. And looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been a divine origin? The text says God called you. Does not your experience prove the same? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration. What grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask you that question without a tear rising in our own eye. Should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love. Oh, if he had not called you, where would you have been tonight? Who am I and what have I been if the Lord in mercy, and I love this statement, had not stopped me in my mad career? This was a kind and gracious call when we consider what we might have been. I I like the way Spurgeon says he called you out of death, out of darkness. He called you from what you were to be what he intends for you to be. And, And Spurgeon says it was a gracious call because it stopped me in my mad career. Now he's not talking about a job there. He's not talking about oh I was aimlessly and madly searching after some career, but he was talking about using career there as way of life, as the way of, of walking in this life. And he says, "God arrested me, God called me. God did a work in me that was unimaginable and called me to be his own." It was a kind and a gracious call. And especially the more so when we consider where we might have been had He not called us. Think about that yourself this morning. Where might you have been right now? I I tell you where I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't be standing in this pulpit had God not graciously made me one of the called. And so, Jude is saying here, listen, there's something for which we as believers must be grateful and must be thankful. There, there's something that we as believers must recognize. He, he said to the, uh, Spurgeon said, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Let me refresh your memories. Go back to that day. Think about that time and uh, think about that season when God called you to himself. The joy that you felt, the joy that you knew, the joy that you dwelled in, And if that has become lessened, if that has become watered down, if that has become distracted from by all of this stuff that we see around us, then I say we should go back to our knees before God and say, God, remind me. God, refresh me. God, show me that I might have gratitude, that I might have genuine praise, that I might have genuine humility, that I might have genuine worship, that I might be a genuine slave of yours. To those who are the called. That's what God did in the past in your life if you're a Christian. That was His previous work in your life. And then He goes on and talks about a present and ongoing work. He says, not only are you the called but you are beloved in God the Father. God's present and ongoing work in your life. If you're a Christian, you you have the the privilege and the joy of, of being able to say, I am loved by God. Now, there are a lot of you here that are probably sitting there saying, well, you know, I don't feel too loved by God. Life is not what I want it to be. I'm not real happy. I'm 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 not really excited about the direction my life is taken right now. I don't really feel loved by God. Loved by God is not a feeling, primarily. To be loved by God is not something you just sit around and say, "Oh." I hope I get this feeling tonight. I, I hope this morning, I, I hope the preacher will say something, just give me this feeling that God loves me. Folks, if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, it is not a feeling, it is a fact that the Scripture makes abundantly clear that God has loved you with an everlasting love. God has loved you enough to do as Spurgeon said, to, to save you and take you, uh, stop you in this mad career that you were headed on because you are beloved in God. The word that's used there for beloved is an interesting word because it carries with it not only an active, penetrating love, but it's a love that changes things. You are beloved in such a way that that there is sanctification taking place. He loves you so much that He's not letting you run back to your mad career. He's not letting you do what you want to do. He loves you so much that He is sanctifying you. His love is cleansing you. His love is purifying you every single day. You see, that's why sometimes His love feels a little harsh that's why sometimes his love sometimes feels pretty painful it's because that love is such a love that he will not allow you to stay in, in such a, an unsanctified condition tra- chasing your mad career but will hold you accountable and draw you ever closer to him because of his love it's a binding love. It's a, it's a love that draws upon your life if you are in Christ. Now, maybe you don't feel loved by the Father because you don't know that special love of the Father. Oh, there's a a general love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I understand there's that general love, but I want you to know also there is a special, specific fatherly love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will know a special fatherly giftedness love that changes everything in your life. And He's saying to these Christians in this unknown church that he's writing to. We don't know what the church is. He knew it. You are not only the called of God, but you are beloved in God. God loves you with a a love that is so intense and so magnificent and so strong that it draws you ever closer to Him. Piper said one time that all the days of our lives he rejoices over us to do us good. In all things he loves us with a personal and particular affection. That's the kind of love that God has given to us. Where do we see that love manifested? Well, we, we saw that love when, when the Holy Spirit changed our heart. We, we saw that love when we We came to Christ by by faith. But we see it vividly manifested on the cross. That God, who was behind the cross, who planned the cross, who who it was His purpose and plan, showed us His love by letting His Son absorb all the wrath and all the the destruction that was intended for you and me. On that cross where He gave Himself. When, When we look for the love of God, we don't look inside. We look to Calvary. We look to the cross. We look behind the cross. The Father who initiated everything that was there and then adopted us into His family as His sons and daughters co-heirs with Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you are the called. If you're in Christ, you are the beloved by the Father. And and, and then uh, Jude says, And if you are in Christ... You are kept. You are kept by God for Jesus Christ. You are kept for Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said in John, and we'll look at this in depth in weeks to come and months to come, but Jesus said, you know, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one that comes to me I will not cast out. And the one that comes to me is secure in my hands and secure in the Father's hands. And and Peter said that, that those who are in Christ are being kept by the power of God. It's not our own strength. It's not our own power. It's not our own doing. But it's the power of God. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of Jesus Christ that saves us, delivers us, seals us, and keeps us until the day we die to go home and be with Him. When Spurgeon asked his congregation to refresh their memories, when Spurgeon asked his congregation to remember the life from which they were, the the death from which they were called into life, when Spurgeon asked them to fly back to that day or that moment or or even that season in which God did a work on his life, he did that in order to remind them that what took place back then is just as secure today. It, it, It was real, it was in God, it was in Christ. Then it's just as secure today as it was. 10 years ago, 30 years ago, or yesterday. Doesn't matter. Jude says, You are called. You are the called. What a a glorious title. You are beloved by God. What a glorious love to to experience and to know. And you are kept for Jesus Christ by God forever. Now, what Jude is wanting is this church to see is this. The false teachers ultimately will not touch you. If you are in Christ, the false teachers ultimately will not lead you astray. You will be discerning. You will be understanding. You'll know what they're saying, but understand this. They can destroy weak. They can destroy People who, in our vernacular day, we would call seekers who are being drawn by the Spirit, but yet who are, who are so fragile and so tender in where they are in their spiritual walk that a false teacher can lead them astray and with them lead them astray into destruction. James says, I want you to know that if you are in Christ, the glorious gospel is your home. The glorious gospel is your protection. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is is what you have, and that's all you have, and that's all you need. There's a book coming out in October by a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine, and the title of the book is Jesus Plus Nothing equals everything. That's a good equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And, and, and if you take it and it's Jesus plus something else, put anything in there, good works, uh, uh, morality, uh, not doing some particular sin that we want to draw up and, and make the you know, ultimate of, as long as I don't do this, put it in there. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Because it's Christ alone. It, it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That is the only hope. So, Jude says, I want you to understand, before I launch into this this call and this command and this encouragement to contend for the faith, I want you to understand that you are called. And and part of your call is to contend, part of your call is to be discerning, part of your call is to, to, to find out what God intends to do in your life. In ministry through your life so that you're not like all these people that he describes here because all these people he describes here whether they're grumblers or disputers or or, or sexually immoral, immoral or whatever any of these that he describes here he says they may slip into the church and they may try to act like they're disciples of Jesus but if they're involved in any of that they are not they are in need of salvation they are in need of Christ so he's saying I want to remind you as we start this journey to contend for the gospel, contend for the faith, I want to remind you, if you're in Christ, who you are and what God has done in your life. It's a glorious, it's, it's a glorious thing that he's done. I mean, it's, a, it, it, it's, a, it's almost unbelievable if it were not True. God, who is the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign of this world, personally and intimately loves me and loves you and loves his body. Jude says, you need to know that. You need to be reminded of that. You need to contemplate on that. You need to think on that. Because there are and there will be rough waters ahead. There are and there will be those who will seek to, to distort and, and destroy the gospel proclamation. Satan will send in those who will seek to, to pollute and, and, and water down the truth of his word in a body. And you need to be discerning. And you'll only be discerning by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, it is by your word and by your truth and by your call that we are in Christ. Father, that's the essence of the gospel. You have so clearly made it known through your word. You've so clearly delineated it, not just here in in Jude's writing, but throughout the the New Testament, that, that the called is who we are. And we are beloved by the Father, And we are kept by you, by your power, by your grace, by your hand. And that, Lord, you own us. We are yours. You paid for us at Calvary. It's by your blood that we are bought, and by your blood that we are cleansed, and by your lo- blood and your grace that we live. Help us, Lord, to live in You and live in obedience. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning that may not know You. I pray, Lord, that this day might be the day that they hear Your call. Even as Lydia, it was very non-dramatic with Lydia there in the book of Acts. When she heard Paul preaching it's Luke says that her eyes and her heart were open, and she believed. That was the call. I pray for men and women sitting here this morning that that their heart might be opened, their eyes might be opened, and they might believe in the only Son of God, only Savior, only Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for others, Lord, who have tried, tried hard to be less than slaves. Lord, call us to acknowledge our submission to you must be absolute. If it's not, it's not Christianity. It's something else. It's Americana, churchianity. Perhaps, but not real Christianity. Father, speak to us now by your Spirit. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.